Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is Harold E. Varmus, MD, Director of the National Cancer Institute, speaking at the Yale School of Medicine's Bicentennial Symposium, Biomedicine in the New Century, on April 28, 2011. I'm very pleased and honored to have the opportunity to uh, introduce Harold Varmus. He also reminded me that it should be short. Uh, just very briefly then. Harold Varmus grew up in Long Island. He obtained a BA degree in English literature, of all other topics, followed by a medical degree from Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. Following postdoctoral training at NIH in the laboratory Ira Pasta, which few years later, I also spent few years, Harold moved to San Francisco as a member of the faculty of UCSF for more than 20 years at UCSF. He did his groundbreaking role in cancer on retroviruses for which he and Michael Bishop shared the Nobel Prize in medicine. In addition to his major scientific achievements, Harold served in important government and, and, and private administrative positions. From 1993 to 1999, he served as a director of the NIH, and during the next decade, he served as a president of the Memorial Sloan Kettler Cancer Institute. As of last year, Harold returned to Bethesda to serve as a director of the National Cancer Institute. Harold also serves on the Council of Advisors of Science and Technology of the Obama administration. I'm very much honored and delighted that Harold accepted our invitation to present a lecture at the symposium, and the topic of his lecture is provocative questions about cancer. Please. Thank you very much, Yossi. It's an honor to be introduced by Yossi, who's been a giant in the field of uh, cell signaling and its implications for cancer, and also has illustrated very dramatically and productively the way in which uh, academics can move between industry and academia uh, for the public good. Well, it's daunting to think about 200 years at Yale Medical School, uh, and it's also daunting to think that I, like many of my fellow silverbacks uh, on the program, um, have been working on our chosen topics for more than 20% of that time. <laughs> now, perhaps not surprising that, uh, that uh, a lot has changed. Um, 40 years ago, when I started working on the molecular basis of cancer, we didn't really have tools to do that, and other than some viruses that cause cancer in animals. Uh, we didn't know anything about how a normal cell was converted into a cancer cell, other than knowing the virus could sometimes do it and sometimes chemicals could do it. Um, all of our clinical diagnostics was based on histology and not on molecules, as we are emphasizing increasingly today. And medical therapies uh, were developed largely by trial and error and not on mechanistic grounds. We didn't have targeted therapies. Uh, we weren't turning too many cancers into controllable chronic diseases uh, at that stage, nor have we solved that problem yet. Well, there's a lot to say about the progress that has been made over the last 40 years, and it would be normal for me to devote my 40 minutes or whatever uh, to it. But You've already heard about uh, telomerase and cancer from Liz. You've heard about uh, microRNAs and 
cancer from Phil. Uh, tomorrow, you'll have Charles Sawyers here to bring you up to date on many topics related to targeted therapies. Uh, you now have uh, Katie Paletti, recently in my lab at Yale. She can tell you what my lab's been doing recently on lung cancer. So today, I'd rather tell you more about some questions than, than answers, and more about the future than about the past. I'm doing this at a difficult time in the history of the NIH, the institution which, as you've heard, uh, I've recently rejoined. Uh, for the first time in my experience, the budget of the NIH has actually been cut this year, and even dif more difficult and deeper cuts are under consideration by a new Congress. Um, but today is not a day for depressing talk, and I know it's, <laughs> I, I know it's bad for my telomeres, uh, so <laughs> I will maintain an optimistic view and talk to you about what I think we can do with, the, with what has been generously provided over the years. Um, at the NCI, where we're struggling to make ends meet this year, we're also trying to make use of the resources we have, and they are considerable, over $5 billion a year. Now, a significant part of what we are trying to do with the NCI um, is to try to define what we don't know and, uh, and, and um, find answers to the questions that are implicit in the notion that we still don't know a lot. And in some instances, it's pretty easy to try to, to define and make concerted efforts to answer some fairly obvious questions. Let me give you some examples. For example, I think probably everybody in this audience knows that we have a major challenge ahead of us as a cancer research community to define the full repertoire of molecular changes in, various, in the many types of cancer. Uh, that effort is being spearheaded at the NCI by the, the, the Cancer Genome Atlas, where we look at gene expression profiles and, and uh, uh, rearrangements of DNA and mutations in DNA microRNA expression, uh, methylation patterns, uh, and join that to other kinds of investigation of changes in, in protein levels and protein modifications and telomere length and many other things. Um, secondly, we want to know which of those changes uh, offer targets for new therapies, uh, which provide opportunities for new kinds of, of, of diagnosis or for ways to monitor the success of treatments or the choice of therapies. And we seek to understand how, um, how re resistance to various kinds of therapies, conventional or new targeted therapies, uh, arise, and uh, how we can get around those resistance mechanisms. But in addition to these mainstream set of questions that we all know are, A, exciting, because we're getting productive answers already, and we have new therapies that look great, and a lot of things coming down the pipeline. But in addition to this class of questions that come quite readily to mind and need to be, uh, uh, there, uh, there another, there's another class that comes less readily to mind and needs to be solicited in a community-wide effort and then explored vigorously by our great pool of scientific talent. And we especially need to do that, in my view, when funds are tight. We call this effort the Provocative Questions uh, Initiative. And let me tell you a little bit about what we're trying to do. So at the NCI, we're trying to develop a list of questions that are important but may be less obvious in this era when we have so many obvious things to do. And we want to use these questions to stimulate our research communities uh, to use all of our sciences, whether laboratory sciences, clinical research, or population-based sciences, 
in particularly effective ways. And we view these questions as uh, questions that should build on uh, actual observations that may be solid, maybe less solid, as you'll see uh, in my presentation today. Um, and those observations should have the potential for increasing our understanding of both cancer and the means to control it. Uh, they should address broad questions, uh, and the best questions uh, will also um, have some reasonable likelihood of progress in the foreseeable future. And um, these questions, when ideally uh, proposed, uh, will show us ways to overcome obstacles uh, to achieving the long-term goals of diagnosing, tr treating, and preventing cancer more effectively. Now, this exercise is being undertaken um, under the direction of a small team uh, uh, that includes my, my deputy director at the NCI, Doug Lowy, uh, famous for his work on, on uh, RAS oncogenes and the human papillomaviruses, virus vaccines, Tyler Jacks, um, in principle, Phil Sharp's boss is the head of the Koch Institute at MIT, and Ed Harlow, who was uh, not long ago the chairman of biochemistry at Harvard and now is serving as a special advisor to me. Uh, we have a website, I'll say more about that in a moment, uh, you can write down the, the, the URL or you might go to uh, cancer.gov and make your way to this site. This site is playing a very active role in our efforts to, um, to um, develop a cohort of important questions. Now what I'd like to do today um, is to um, take you on a, a tour of some of the questions that have come to our attention through the various activities that we've been carrying out. Uh, those include a series of workshops that have been held at the NIH, uh, workshops that are being organized at various institutions around the country. The Yale organizer is yet to be identified for a local provocative questions workshop. Uh, we are collecting questions through the website and uh, questions that are posted on the website are being commented on. We have over a thousand people who've already registered as active members of the website and uh, at least 100 people who've proposed questions on the site. Um, what I'd like to do today to stimulate your curiosity about this adventure and also to tell you about some of the things that uh, many of us see as uh, potentially provocative and productive uh, topics for research over the next decade or two is to take you on a quick uh, tour of, uh, of uh, activities or questions that have been posed in a lot of uh, generic areas of cancer research, epidemiology, pathogenesis, risk modification, prevention, diagnostics, and therapeutics. Uh, some of this will build on work that does, will be familiar with you. Some of it will remind you of what you learned in, in uh, your first introductions to uh, distribution of cancers around the world. Um, and I hope some of it will provoke you to think about uh, new approaches you might take uh, to, to thinking about or working on cancer yourself. Now, I spent a little bit of time on epidemiology, I think, because it's, a, it's an area where there is a lot of um, longstanding observation uh, that has not yet brought us to some of the deeper conclusions about cancer that I think will be important to eventual uh, control, both here and importantly around the world. And though I won't say much about this, one of the efforts I've been making as director of N at the NCI is to focus our attention uh, more than it has been focused on efforts to bring cancer under control in developing countries where efforts to improve health have focused mainly on infectious diseases and there's now a, an increasing effort to spend 
to give greater attention to the non-communicable disorders such as cancer, which are increasingly prevalent as a result of our efforts to in increase the lifespan in many countries that have instituted improved health programs. Many of you are familiar with maps like these that show that, um, that different forms of cancer uh, that range from um, gastric cancer up on your upper left, cervical cancer on the right, uh, lung cancer, breast cancer, and prostate cancer occur in very dramatically different patterns. What you see here uh, on these uh, uh, intensity maps is, first of all, the fact that the, the, the distribution of cancers of different types is dramatically different, that uh, the different parts of the world, especially if you divide the economically advanced world into the economically backward, uh, less advantageous part of the world, uh, differ dramatically. Um, lung cancer, for example, having the highest rates in US, Canada, and Europe, including the Soviet Union, uh, whereas uh, a disease uh, like cervical cancer is uh, as most, uh, uh, most common in uh, parts of uh, Africa and South America. Uh, stomach cancer being much more common in throughout Asia and, and Russia and parts of Latin America. We, there are many ways in which one can envision explaining some of these things. The prevalence of infectious agents that contribute to cancer uh, in some of these areas, uh, those agents in, including papillomaviruses, bacteria such as Helicobacterium pylori uh, and others, uh, some of the factors being environmental, especially tobacco use and, and, uh, and diet, uh, and of course a possible contribution uh, to, uh, through uh, inherited mutations, genetics. Uh, we know that uh, heredity probably plays a relatively small part in most of these patterns because efforts have been made to use um, the migration of individuals from one part of the world to another to assess the contribution of environment uh, to uh, these uh, epidemiological patterns. So for example, when, um, when uh, people of Chinese ancestry move to the US uh, and you compare uh, Chinese American disease incidence as shown in the dotted line with that of uh, Native American, people have been in America for several generations uh, and with uh, Native Chinese who are still in China, uh, you can see that the, there's a dramatic shift uh, in both the incidence of prostate cancer and the incidence of breast cancer to the American patterns. And these raise some obvious questions about what environmental factors are most critical in, uh, in assessing uh, these, these and trying to explain uh, these dramatic shifts in incidence that occur when people migrate from one environment to another. In general, we've had difficulty identifying environmental factors other than, other than, than uh, tobacco use and specific viruses in trying to um, uh, identify risk factors that seem to be environmentally based. And data sets of this kind and many others that uh, have been less well studied uh, do provide important clues that can be studied much more closely with some of the genomic tools now available, for example, to seek uh, environmental signatures, such as those that are observed in liver cancer that arise in people exposed to aflatoxin. Another, uh, effort, another observation that comes out of uh, um, long-standing efforts to do epidemiology are differences in, um, in cancer uh, in males and females. We're all familiar with a, an obvious difference that results from 
one sex having an organ the other doesn't have. So prostate cancer, understandably, is not very common in women. But what is largely forgotten in these discussions is a large number of cancers that uh, have a markedly increased rate uh, of both incidence and death uh, in males versus females. Males, as I think most people know, uh, cause a higher frequency of, of deaths among males than in females by a, a modest margin. But if you look especially at esophageal cancer, liver cancers, laryngeal cancers, um, the, the distribution differences are very dramatic. And conversely, thyroid cancer, much more common in women than in men. We know very little about these differences. Uh, they may be explained by, uh, by sex hormones, but maybe not. Uh, and uh, in some cases, there may be a contribution to, uh, made by uh, certain habits, like uh, tobacco chewing and other things. But, but these are, again, clues that deserve a lot more uh, explanation than they've received to date. Another set of variations has to do with variations in, um, uh, in age. So we have uh, accepted the idea that cancer is a disease of aging. Indeed, as you've heard already today, I think from Mike Marmot, uh, uh, cancers are, um, about 80% of cancers are diagnosed in individuals over 60 years of age. But that doesn't mean that cancer uh, increases in incidence in a simplistic mode uh, with age. We're all used to data like this that show that uh, breast cancer and prostate cancer um, in general increase with age. Some of these declines here may be uh, related to uh, the, uh, the frequency of use of, of screening or the willingness to make a diagnosis of, of uh, a cancer that, um, that occurs at a very late age in life. Uh, but what is often forgotten in these discussions are the other cancers, especially pediatric cancers like retinoblastoma, which occur almost exclusively under the age of five, or cancers like osteosarcomas that uh, occur most commonly in teenage years. In addition, there are other cancers, glioblastoma multiforme, uh, and um, uh, uh, cancers of, uh, of the blood system, especially CML and a few others that tend to peak in middle ages. And we don't really understand the cell dynamics and other factors that, that, uh, that might be responsible for such variation. For example, the number of stem cells in, this, in a particular organ. Another feature of epidemiology we haven't paid that much attention to is the question of why tumors arise at very different frequencies uh, in different organs, irrespective of the size or the number of cells in that organ. Indeed, um, the heart, which is quite a large organ, has many, many, many fewer cancers than the prostate. Virtually every male uh, has uh, cancer of the prostate uh, by the time they reach the age of uh, 80 or 90, um, whereas heart cancers are, are extremely uncommon. There are a few uh, sarcomas and, 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 uh, and benign tumors of the heart that have been encountered. And the question of why hearts don't develop cancers has been posed to me by two individuals. One a cricket sideman, a renowned uh, 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 cardiac uh, biochemist and physiologist, and another person who proposed this question to me was uh, John Porter, who used to be the chairman of our uh, House Appropriations Subcommittee. So you can see this, uh, this question attracts wide interest, uh, but hasn't been answered. Another very intriguing observation is that colon cancer and colorectal cancer are, are um, is the uh, one of, the third, one of the leading causes of cancer mortality in this country. Small intestinal cancer in human beings um, is uh, 
virtually, it's not unknown, but it's very, very rare, despite the fact that, uh, that many features of the, of the uh, small intestine resemble those of the large intestine. And in diseases like familial adenomatous polyposis, in which there is a pre-existing mutation in the tumor suppressor gene, APC, virtually all the tumors arise in the large intestine, not the small. We also have a major discrepancy that uh, has been noted by many. Um, data is not always so solid, but uh, that, that suggests that, that animals of very different sizes have uh, uh, different and sometimes uh, um, paradoxical uh, cancer frequencies. So the mouse with a sm relatively small li short lifespan and small size has a very high frequency of cancers, differing from mouse strain to mouse strain, admittedly. Uh, Turtles rarely have cancers of any kind unless they happen to be infected with certain uh, turtle-specific strains of papillomavirus. Um, sharks have been alleged never to have cancer, and that led to a whole problem of its own because uh, you can go to any one of your local health food stores and buy shark, shark cartilage on the grounds that, that uh, this extract will protect you from cancer. It does not. Um, but it has led the, 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 the general belief in the the, the cancer-free uh, nature of sharks has led to uh, significant uh, uh, decimation of the of shark populations in certain parts of the world. Um, sharks don't have many cancers, but they do have some. Uh, whales are interesting. They're obviously very large. A lot of cells at risk for cancer. They live a long time. Uh, cancers are quite infrequent, except in one type of whale, beluga whales in the St. Lawrence uh, estuary, uh, where they're appear to be, um, um, there's a, uh, a high, relatively high cancer frequency there, which probably suggests some specific and probably informative etiological agent, possibly virus, which is causing um, both papillomas uh, and uh, papillomas carcinomas and, and uh, breast cancers. Finally, there's another epidemiological issue that's of some interest, which addresses the question of whether there may be uh, cross-protection between some diseases. Uh, we heard earlier um, from Huda Zugby about uh, uh, mutations uh, that, uh, uh, that lead to Rett syndrome and involve uh, responses to methylated DNA. And uh, one could imagine a, a linkage there, not fully explored, uh, between cancer rates and, and diseases of, of that type. But in a number of recent uh, efforts to look at cancer incidence uh, in patients with uh, neurodegenerative diseases, um, a number of intriguing observations have been made. For example, uh, in a recent paper by uh, Rowe et al., it's been shown that, that uh, when you do make a concerted effort uh, in, among uh, Caucasian patients uh, who have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, uh, the incidence of cancer appears to be low. There was an effort here to correct for the likelihood that, uh, that an effort to ascertain cancers in those patients might be less. Um, uh, conversely, um, patients who, um, um, who have cancer seem to have a reduced incidence of Alzheimer's disease, and that again uh, was, uh, uh, attempt was made to correct for the obvious bias of having patients die of cancer before they reach the age at which Alzheimer's occurs. Nevertheless, this is a, these are provocative observations, and they, they require further substantiation, and then an effort to try to understand whether there's some underlying um, molecular basis for this kind of difference. It is encouraging to 
credit this data, uh, given the fact that when you look at vascular dementia as opposed to Alzheimer's, uh, that protection against cancer is not observed. Now, Alzheimer's disease is not the only neurodegenerative disease in which uh, some protection against cancers has been observed. There have been similar observations with Huntington's disease, uh, Parkinson's disease, and Fragile X syndrome. And in a set of observations recently published by Olson et al., uh, there is uh, evidence that, that many cancer types are less frequent in both males and females with Parkinson's disease. And at the same time, there are at least two fairly common cancers, breast and malignant melanoma, that occur at an enhanced frequency in both sexes in patients with Parkinson's disease. Whether this has some relation to some subtype of Parkinson's, or whether it's related to um, mutations in the Parkin gene or other genes that may be predisposing to, to Parkinson's remains to be understood, but these are clearly, again, provocative observations. Let me say a few things about pathogenesis. One can argue that epidemiology itself can inform the study of pathogenesis uh, since uh, patterns of cancer incidence may help to identify causative agents such as viruses or sunlight or, or tobacco. Um, one very striking thing from a slide I showed you earlier is that despite the very wide prevalence of a major causative agent of gastric cancer, namely Helicobacter pylori, uh, cancer incident, gastric cancer incidence varies dramatically around the world. And it's not especially clear as yet why, this, why these differences are so profound, over 10 or 20 or 30-fold. One clue comes from a recent study uh, uh, carried out by Saplet et al., just published in Gut this year, uh, in which um, an effort was made to understand very profound differences in the incidence of gastric cancer in Colombia, South America, where the distribution of H. pylori is uh, basically universal, um, but uh, the incidence of gastric cancer is 25-fold higher in mountainous regions than in coastal regions. And by looking at uh, isolates of H. pylori from many patients in these two locations, they developed, uh, the, the, the group of, of scientists who published this paper, uh, developed a, a, a genealogical tree and showed that, that, uh, that gastric cancer tended to be associated with, possibly uh, due to uh, the carriage of H. pylori that has European rather than African origins. And it's studies like this that seem to me to suggest that a much closer look at uh, microbial flora and carrying out with the kind of subspeciation that's now possible with, uh, with high-throughput DNA sequencing may be a very useful exercise that leads to uh, specific changes in the, in the way in which we attempt to change the flora to control against cancer. Uh, a recent uh, uh, publication from Drew Pardell's group, Pardell's group at, at Hopkins, uh, gives another perspective on this kind of study. This is a study carried out in a mouse model uh, based on the APC mutation uh, that I mentioned earlier. These mice, so-called min mice, have a mutation in one copy of the APC gene, and um, without any further perturbation, uh, these animals develop small intestinal tumors at very high frequency in contrast to the colonic tumors that are seen in human beings who have not only the the same mutated gene, but exactly the same, common, the, ver the very same mutation, a frame shift mutation in APC. 
a, an organism which has been thought to have oncogenic properties, an enterotoxigenic bacterioides fragilis, has been instilled in these animals to see their effect on the development of tumors uh, and uh, the intriguing observation uh, recorded in these pictures is that large intestinal colonic tumors arise at high frequency in min mice that, uh, that carry uh, certain strains of uh, enterotoxigenic uh, bacillus fragilis. Uh, and this again illustrates the potential uh, power of looking more closely at the microbiome, as we used to call it, the intestinal flora, uh, to attempt to identify uh, specific organisms that may be making specific factors that are contributory to neoplasia. Now, an underlying problem in, in um, trying to understand patterns of oncogene mutation or tumor suppressor gene mutation and the development of certain kinds of tumors has been the observation that, that uh, many tumor types are specifically associated, often at very high frequency, with certain kinds of mutations. Think RAS mutations occurring at, in virtually every case of, uh, of um, pancreatic carcinoma, uh, think of um, the high frequency of RAS, EGF receptor, or ALK mutations in certain kinds of lung cancer. Uh, think about the essentially universal appearance of, of uh, a, an ABLE gene translocation with activation of the ABLE kinase in CML. And it's long been assumed that the association of these mutations with a specific tumor type reflects some property of the context in which those genes, those cancer genes are active, and the consequence for the cell dependent on, on context. But that hand-waving about context seems to me to provide a tremendous opportunity for identifying other factors in, in pathogenesis that may be therapeutic targets. A good example of how we might proceed to understand the molecular significance and the, the me mechanistic explanation of these contextual effects. Uh, is uh, presented in a paper uh, by Chi et al. This is uh, Charles Sawyer's group uh, last year. Uh, Charles tells me he's not talking about this tomorrow, so I hope I'm not overlapping with him. Um, but what Charles and his colleagues did was to take uh, notice of the fact that, that uh, gastrointestinal stromal tumors, which are almost always associated <coughs> with mutations either in the PDGF receptor or in the kit transmembrane tyrosine kinase, uh, arise from the interstitial cells of Cajal in the intestinal epithelium. And um, by pooling gene expression data from several previously published studies, they identified 11 genes uh, that uh, are um, nearly all, well, are common to, uh, to GIS in all three studies. Then by using um, knockdown approaches with, uh, with, with um, uh, with hairpin uh, microRNAs, they identified uh, a transcription factor known as ETV1 as a, an important target uh, that is expressed um, in, uh, in both normal Cajal cells and in gastrointestinal stromal tumors, uh, and uh, have proposed um, a very rather simplistic mechanism, but one that suggests that normal interstitial uh, cells of Cajal uh, development um, under the influence of moderate levels of expression of ETV uh, with signaling through the kit pathway. In, in cells that acquire a kit mutation, the signaling is intensified, uh, and as long as ETV1 is present, 
uh, high levels of expression of genes that contribute to the neoplastic phenotype occur. So this suggests that, that in addition to targeting KIT, as is commonly done with the imatinib and the treatment of GIST, there are other targets in this pathway uh, as well as the potential for interfering uh, with the function of ETV or other ways in which ETV protein uh, is known to be regulated, both at the transcriptional and protein degradation levels. Let's talk a little bit about risk modification. Um, in the arena of cancer research in which we all work today, uh, there's, of course, tremendous excitement about exploiting our understanding of cancer genomics to develop new therapies, and much of the cancer advocacy that we all hear about comes from people, understandably, who have cancer now and, uh, and uh, seek to harness what we've learned about cancer to develop new therapies. But understanding risk, modifying it, trying to prevent cancers with uh, various interventions are a very important part of what we do with the NCI, and I believe a very important part of what cancer control is all about. We'll never succeed completely by doing this kind of thing, but we can succeed to a very large extent. And indeed, uh, the declining cancer incidence and death rates that have been observed in this country over the last 10 to 20 years are very significantly attributable, attributable to, uh, to a behavior modification with respect to smoking. Indeed, tobacco use is the, the arena in which we can take um, most, most pride in our ability to control cancer in this country. But we also know that there is a, a large segment of the population that's been refractory to, the, to efforts to modify behavior and reduce cancer rates still further. And we need to ask the question of why we don't um, we aren't able to, uh, to uh, modify behaviors in these individuals. There are at least three general categories of, uh, of um, uh, insufficient understanding that uh, behavioral scientists who've come to our provocative questions workshops have uh, talked to us about. One is that we don't design the message optimally. And here I give you four examples of, of uh, messages that have appeared on uh, cigarette packages, for example. Um, or possibly the message isn't effectively delivered. Maybe this shouldn't just be, or maybe this shouldn't be mainly on tobacco packages, but on other things. Uh, and then we have perhaps not uh, done what can be done uh, in talking to or uh, otherwise uh, preparing uh, minds to, to um, accept the, the implications of uh, these efforts to change behavior uh, and maybe a little more training of uh, receptive minds is, is the thing that needs to be done. Another factor in conferring risk of cancer is obesity. This has been known for some time. The most persuasive paper is the paper by Kyle et al. In New, appeared in the New England Journal about uh, eight years ago. And what these folks show is that, uh, that uh, especially when one looks at the, the highest um, uh, strata of, uh, of overweight individuals in this country, uh, that, uh, that the risk of cancers of, of many types, uh, especially, as you can see here for women, uterus, kidney, cervix, pancreas, esophagus, uh, and in men as well, uh, in this case, liver, pancreas, and stomach, and esophagus, is uh, in the range of two to five times higher. Overall, a two and a half times increased incidence in, in, the, in the especially obese uh, cohort of our population. Uh, and um, uh, the, um, 
the authors speculate in the discussion that uh, if obesity were completely eliminated in this country, um, not something which is going to happen overnight, uh, that uh, we could reduce the number of deaths from cancer in this country from its current 560,000 or so by about 90,000. That's a very big cut in the overall cancer mortality rate. As you know, cancer, uh, obesity is a growing phenomenon in, in this country and throughout both the developed and the developing world. Um, these, this shows graphically how uh, rapid um, the increase in obesity has been. Uh, so simple control of obesity by the kinds of measures currently uh, in existence are not particularly effective. So it's hard right now to do a study in which you attempt to ascertain whether you can reverse the risk of cancer by reversing obesity. There is, however, a, a um, uh, an extreme measure that, can, that has been taken in many patients, and that is to uh, carry out what's called bariatric surgery and to, uh, uh, by performing uh, gastrointestinal uh, reorganization, uh, lower uh, weight uh, pretty dramatically. And as this chart shows from a study that appeared a couple of years ago in the New England Journal, uh, one can reduce uh, all death by all causes by roughly twofold, even over a period as short as seven years. And uh, when, although the numbers of, of deaths from cancer are relatively small here, uh, it's clear that the, there's about a two and a half fold reduction in, in cancer rates as a result of bariatric surgery and the attendant weight loss. Um, and uh, obviously confirmatory data are going to be required, but this is a very uh, encouraging piece of information to suggest that we ought to understand this much more profoundly. What is it about obesity that contributes to cancer risk? Is it an inflammatory process? Is it the weight itself? Is it, uh, are there um, hormonal factors that uh, are um, either expressed by fat cells or by cells that uh, govern appetite that also have an effect on the propensity of cells to uh, become cancerous? And in my view, this is a very important area for a study that's been underworked. Let me say a little bit more about uh, prevention of a more conventional sort uh, that uses uh, actual interventions as opposed to simply identifying risks and thinking about ways to modify them. Uh, I think probably everybody here is familiar with the idea that there are quite a few drugs that are in very, very common use in this country, statins, aspirin, uh, um, some certain drugs for diabetes and others, and that there are large cohorts of individuals who are taking these drugs on a daily basis for long periods of time. This is a natural kind of experiment. Uh, comparative effectiveness research can have its beginnings here. And on January 1st of this year, uh, a group of, of uh, individuals headed by Rothwell published a paper in Lancet in which they published a, in which they uh, summarized a, a meta-analysis of uh, seven large-scale studies of individuals who were taking aspirin for protection against cardiovascular events. And overall, what was observed was that after about five years of, uh, of chronic use of aspirin, there was a very significant difference in death rates from cancer um, with aspirin use protecting uh, uh, these individuals um, by uh, about uh, the extent of about 20%. Moreover, when you look cancer by cancer, you find that there are some cancers, such as esophageal, stomach, colorectal, and lung cancer, all of which show uh, quite dramatic effects, especially for esophageal cancer and, uh, and colorectal cancer. Uh, in contrast, there are a number of cancers, the pancreas, the prostate, kidney, 
the blood system in which the effects are small or non-existent. So this seems to be somewhat tissue specific. Um, more people would be using aspirin if we could somehow prevent or bypass the uh, potential hemorrhagic effects of using aspirin chronically. Uh, and uh, it would be, in my view, very useful to try to understand whether aspirin is actually working as an anti-inflammatory agent or by some other mechanism. If it's working in an anti-inflammatory way, what is the uh, component of the inflammatory uh, phenomena that, uh, that is being uh, interfered with by, um, by aspirin? Can we develop agents that uh, could be used chronically that, uh, that confer the same benefit of protection from cancer without uh, incurring the risk of, of, uh, of intestinal hemorrhage? Let me say something about, uh, about diagnostics. Um, here we get into an area which is uh, obviously um, going to be very heavily influenced by uh, the, the massive and exciting efforts that are being made in cancer genomics. But there are a few questions that are worth uh, focusing on uh, more specifically. Now, we know we all want to develop uh, th diagnostics that allow us to say which drugs individuals should and, shouldn't and should not get. Um, but some of that is, should be dependent not just on deciding what the targets are for drugs, but also on what the, uh, what the, the, um, uh, the pathogenic potential of any lesion might be. Because of more intensive screening and better histopathology, we're all now familiar with a variety of neoplastic lesions, ranging from uh, colonic uh, polyps, not shown here, to prostatic. Uh, preneoplastic lesions, uh, non-invasive uh, intraepithelial neoplasia, the ductal carcinoma in situ that's very commonly seen uh, in, uh, in women in this country um, and can be detected by mammography. Uh, even pancreatic intraepithelial neoplasia has been identified uh, in individuals who have been um, examined um, surgically for prostate cancer or, or for uh, prostatitis, pan pancreatitis, sorry. Uh, and uh, in each of these cases, we are at a loss to know the likelihood that these disorders are going to proceed uh, to an invasive, frankly, carcinomatous state. And uh, paying more attention to this issue is going to have an effect not just on drug choice, but also on the general uh, vigor with which uh, therapies are, are pursued. Conversely, we need to understand more, more profoundly the significance of finding cells from a primary tumor at a basically metastatic site, a, a, a different site. And while the alarm bells will always go off when we find cancer cells at a distant site, we're not really sure that, uh, that alarm bells should always go off. Uh, here is an example of a, a so-called sentinel lymph node uh, that was uh, invaded by a ductal breast cancer, a primary in the breast, um, to, to, uh, to illustrate this point because uh, just this year, um, a consortium of surgeons around the country published a paper in which they showed that individuals who simply had a, a biopsy and removal of, of the sentinel lymph node, the lymph node to which uh, the breast primarily uh, um, acts as a primary site for, uh, for, for, lymph, for, for breast drainage, compared to full axillary dissection, which was in, in prior years, the standard of care for treatment of, uh, of breast cancer that did show um, 
uh, spread of breast cancer cells to the sentinel node. And as you can see, uh, whether you simply measure uh, individuals who are alive after um, surgery that includes, uh, includes um, uh, axillary lymph node dissection, full removal of axillary lymph nodes, or just uh, sentinel lymph node dissection alone, uh, or whether one looks both at disease-free and alive, patients um, really are indistinguishable in these two groups. Actually, it looks here as though there's a slight advantage to only having had um, uh, the, the um, sentinel lymph node dissection. So clearly, there are situations in which the finding of a disseminated cell uh, growing in another site is not a reason to, uh, to carry out uh, extensive surgery. A couple of words, again, about therapeutics, just to emphasize a, a couple of points. Um, we all know that uh, there are um, traditional cancer treatments that very often work. They're sometimes derided as being uh, cut, uh, poison, and burn. But the fact, the fact is that surgery is our major defense against cancer mortality at this point, uh, that uh, radiotherapy does cure some individuals and is a tremendous benefit and has gotten much more sophisticated in re recent years, as has surgery. Uh, chemotherapy tends to be viewed uh, with a fair amount of disrespect, even though I would contend that it has prolonged lives. More importantly, we tend to forget that some disseminated cancers are cured by chemotherapy alone. The classical example that everybody in this room knows about is testicular cancer, uh, and Lawrence, Lance Armstrong had metastatic testicular cancer involving um, the, the lungs and brain, and yet went on to win seven tours to France. Uh, and uh, he is not alone. Not, roughly 95% of patients with testicular cancer can be cured with cisplatin, an agent which uh, is of only modest benefit in certain other, in most other cancers for which it's used, in the ovary, lung, and many other organs. And we have other cancers, lymphomas and leukemias, uh, 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 um, some germ, other germ cell tumors that can be cured with conventional chemotherapy. In my view, even though we've known this for some years, we've given insufficient attention to the characteristics of these tumors and the way in which these drugs work um, at, to try to understand more profoundly why some chemotherapies that tend to be derided actually are quite effective in certain situations. So there are a wide range of things we haven't been paying that much attention to. We need to think about much more profoundly. Uh, I hope that the provocative questions exercise will uh, help us to focus on some of those questions. For those of you who are concerned about uh, uh, the, the availability of grants to work on these things, the NCI will be issuing an RFA sometime in the near future to, uh, to study provocative questions that have come from our website. Um, and I urge all of you at Yale and elsewhere to uh, participate in this community effort to draw our attention to some of the most profound questions in cancer research that perhaps aren't getting all the, the funds and attention that we're giving to cancer genomics and, uh, and, and cancer therapeutics. Thanks very much. Harold E. Varmus, MD, was one of the 15 illustrious scientists who delivered lectures to a capacity crowd at Yale School of Medicine at a symposium celebrating the school's bicentennial in April 2011.